Welcome to the CropCast, a podcast for peace studies conversations convened by the University of Notre Dame's Croc Institute for International Peace Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs. In today's episode, Croc Institute Director Asher Kaufman talks with Croc Institute faculty members, researchers, and graduate students about aspects of the current coronavirus crisis, including gender, environmental, anthropological, and indigenous considerations. Hello, everybody. I'm Asher Kaufman. I'm the director of the Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies. The Kroc Institute is one of the world's leading centers for the study of the causes of violent conflict and the strategies for sustainable peace. We study, teach, and research on a wide range of topics related to peace and uh, justice. Like the rest of the globe, we are deeply concerned about the effects of COVID-19 on the well-being of individuals and uh, communities. We thought to use our own experts among our faculty and students and to ask them to speak about COVID-19 from the perspective of their expertise as scholars, practitioners, and uh, activists. With us uh, today at this uh, podcast are Ashley Borer, Assistant Professor of Gender and Peace Studies, Catherine Bolton, Associate Professor of Anthropology and Peace Studies, Justin De Leon, Visiting Research Fellow at the Kroc Institute, and Drew Marcantonio, Doctoral Student in Anthropology and Peace Studies. Ashley, as a scholar and a practitioner of gender and gender studies, can you share with us your thoughts on the effect of the coronavirus on gender, gender dynamics in the U.S. and elsewhere? So I think one of the first things to think about in this current conjunction is the way in which certain roles or jobs that people are playing who are classified as emergency workers or who are frontline workers in this crisis tend to be overwhelmingly professions that are female-led and feminized. So some broad statistics here. Nine out of 10 nurses in the United States are women. Nine out of 10 carers for the elderly are women. 9.7 out of 10 child carers in the United States are women. About eight to 10 K through six teachers are women. And in addition to some of these central professions being dominated by women, held by women, we see that the kind of risk that COVID is placing on our communities disproportionately puts women at risk not only for contracting the virus, but also in some very significant ways for being unable to access their own routes to care and services under COVID. So some of the other professions that we've seen reclassified as essential workers in, in the past weeks have been grocery store clerks, meal prep clerks, pharmacists, social workers. And all of these are also predominantly female industries. And what I think the crisis is revealing is the way in which these workers have always been essential to the economy, but they aren't recognized as such. There was a study that came out uh, earlier today that showed that nearly two-thirds of frontline workers in New York City, which is right now the epicenter of the coronavirus epidemic, are women. And over half of them are not only women and therefore vulnerable 
in relationship to gender, but they are also non-citizens. So people like janitorial and custodial staff who are at heightened risk of contracting the virus, people who are delivery workers, these people tend not only to be gendered, but also racialized in particular ways that reveals, I think, a crisis in what and who we value in the system. Women, I think, tend to be overwhelmingly employed in what academics have called the social reproduction sector. So the businesses that are necessary for life to go on. And yet disproportionately, these people are hourly workers. They're often low wage. They often don't have access even to their own health care. And so what I think we're seeing is the way in which industries that tend to be associated or perceived as doing women's work in general, so education and care work, are both at a heightened exposure to the, to the virus, but they're also at heightened exposure for layoffs and for losing employer-provided health insurance. And they tend to disproportionately work in industries that don't offer employer-provided health insurance. I think a gender lens can also help us think about how this crisis has redistributed some of the unpaid social reproductive burdens that we see in the crisis. So who's responsible for now homeschooling children who are no longer going to school, for caring for sick family members, who's more responsible for doing the added housework that comes when multiple members of a family are are inside all of the time, who's doing all of their laundry. And so I think what we're seeing is that there is a still a strong way in which there's a social construction of women's work in both paid and unpaid ways in, in the contemporary setup of the economy. And that because of this, women's labor tends to be, and feminized labor more generally, tends to be more poorly remunerated and at a higher risk. So I would say that what a gender lens is exposing is the way in which we have set up a system of valuation inside American society and the American economy is essentially sexist and that the crisis is is exposing not only how this is playing out in a moment of crisis, but how this crisis in the way we value femininity and feminine labor is a constant structure under our system. It has always been this way and is being heightened in this moment. Justin, you're a scholar of indigenous studies with a particular focus on Native Americans here in the United States. Can you share with us your own thoughts about the effect of COVID-19 on Native populations here in the U.S.? Yes, and in order to understand, I would say, the, the coronavirus in Native communities, I think we have to talk not only about health, but also about health care and also some of the historical context around viruses and also around trust or mistrust. My work is with the Lakota folks in North and South Dakota, but particularly looking at vulnerabilities and insecurity. So there are some overlaps. Within Native studies, there is this sentiment that Native peoples act as a microcosm or a a sort of a barometer for injustice. You don't have to look very far to see that there are accounts where Adolf Hitler was studying the eradication and movements and movements into the reservations of native peoples of the 1800s when he started his works to sort of cordon off certain peoples in Europe. 
So that's just a, a thing to think about how we can think about this particular marginalized population as acting as sort of a measuring stick or a testing ground for other efforts to marginalize other groups. So when we think of health, we know that genocide and native genocide in particular hasn't always just been about physical killing, but it's also been about the spread of disease. This really stems from a time when native communities were pushed westward before 1850 and moved into reservations and taken off land. And there were these treaties about, I want to say maybe about almost 400 treaties that were signed. And in those treaties, there were promises for healthcare, food, essential provisions, education. And a lot of those promises have not been kept. So what we see today is that we have very significant poor health outcomes within Native communities. Things like uh, high rates of poverty, unemployment, a greater likelihood to experience sexual abuse or to be killed by the police, really high rates, 1.6 times infant mortality rates than their white counterparts, and almost six years less life expectancy. And again, that's because of this sort of broken treaty, this history of broken treaties. There's also high proportions of cancer, diabetes, and many of those underlying conditions which the CDC had said you're more vulnerable to the coronavirus. So that's in terms of health. In terms of health care, very much to Dr. Burroughs' point that who is made disposable in our communities in the United States, and Native people have been marked for generations as quote-unquote disposable. You don't have to look very far to look to the Indian boarding schools and medical experiments. There is also a lot of conversations around medical experiments with the Tuskegee syphilis experiment and so on and so forth. Some of the same doctors were involved there. There's a disproportionality in, in terms of mining and, and polluting extraction of the environment being on native territory and or affecting native peoples. So the long history of native peoples being quote unquote dispensable. Now, Native communities have pushed back against this. Most recently, the Wet'suwet'en community in, in British Columbia, just in March, were pushing back about the creation of a natural gas pipeline. The, the Standing Rock incident in North and South Dakota in 2016, which ironically, just two days ago, a federal judge ordered that the, uh, there needs to be a full environmental assessment and that the way that that initially was pushed through was illegal. So these things are ongoing in terms of healthcare. The community that I work in, which is in North and uh, South Dakota, fortunately, there's been no documented cases of coronavirus. And that's a very good thing because already the health systems within Native country, many of them, particularly the remote ones, are already extremely taxed. In the community that I work in, it's the landmass equivalent to Connecticut, right? And in terms of policing, there's only 20 police in that entire landmass. And if you compare that to Connecticut, Connecticut has almost 8,000 police officers in that small area. This is also representative of the healthcare service. Just to get to the hospital, if you had a car yourself, it would take nearly two hours in some parts of the reservation just to get to a hospital. So they're already strained and already taxed, and so a virus outbreak could actually be very, very damaging. Fortunately, because of this extremely vulnerable situation, many of the Lakota communities shut down all travel to and from the reservation, not only with their own governance, but also just other visitors really early on, early in March, almost before anything else happened around the country, because we saw that the H1N1 virus actually damaged and, and really impact a lot of First Nations and Native communities a handful of years ago. So there was this extra attentiveness to try to 
keep people people safe. There are multiple ways that Native folks, at least in South Dakota, can get health care. One of them is through the uh, Indian Health Service. Another one is through Public Health Service, which is through the state, and then also through tribal. The Indian Health Service has always been challenged in terms of resources, and that might be an understatement. Even in good days, it could take hours and hours and hours just to see a doctor, and they're limited in their ability to recommend individuals to go to other places for specialized coverage. So you're already stretched thin in those environments, and certainly they don't have enough equipment and resources to take care of the specialized need of COVID patients. So that is a big vulnerability. Let's talk a little bit about the historical context. In 1760s, there was cases of early colonizers giving smallpox blankets to Native communities to actually spread viruses that would decimate and would soon then after decimate Native communities. So there's a valid mistrust in sort of the the non-Native neighbors and also U.S. governance when it comes to keeping people safe and keeping people healthy. So that's the historical context. And I could talk more about that later. But that is to say that the history of settler colonialism and oppression cannot be separated from how Native communities are understanding the reaction to the coronavirus. And let me just give you a quick snapshot of what I understand is happening today. So like I said, in Canada, there was a big impact of the H1N1 virus years ago. So now a lot of the Native communities are are hypervigilant about trying to marshal those resources to, to fight this virus. Just yesterday, the Australian Indigenous Doctors Association put out a press release that said racism and prejudice from non-Indigenous doctors is causing the deaths and lives of Indigenous people already, that there's already been cases where Aboriginal folks are not been given tests, and they're instead met by racist remarks by healthcare professionals. So they're calling for equitable treatment among Aboriginal peoples. Canada also, the Assembly of First Nations declared a state of emergency, and they've been also calling upon the government to marshal more resources. In the United States, I mentioned to you that the Lakota Territory has no cases yet, but South Dakota has four. The Navajo Nation earlier this week had one case, and at the end of this week, they have about 70. It's a strained situation there. There's about 570 plus federally recognized tribes, so there's so much specificity. But in Navajo territory, there's 13 groceries for what's equivalent to the size of state of uh, Massachusetts, Vermont, and New Hampshire combined. So it's already a food desert. There are some mobilizations amongst community members to take care of elders, including adopt elder programs and, and grandma baskets, they call them. More locally to Notre Dame, the Pokagan folks have called out a government task force and they've created this pandemic response mode. There are no known cases at this moment within tribal governance or within the tribal community, fortunately. They did close their Four Winds Casino, and they also have all these creative responses on on YouTube around how to keep people healthy and active. Now, not all of these stories are of doom and gloom. In actuality, the Pokagan Band of the Potawatomi was able to donate and has been able to donate a big amount of food, almost 8,000 pounds of food to nonprofits called Feeding America and Cultivate for Southwest Michigan and also Northern Indiana. So just a quick highlight about there's been a handful of bills that have included native appropriations for uh, combating this coronavirus. What I would say, just to be brief on this, is that there has been a big portion, about 10 billion that was allotted to native communities in this bill that's being passed currently. And then the bill that was passed two weeks ago, there was also about 
40 million allotted to Indian country. These are great things. A lot of leaders in native country are happy about that. However, all of those estimations are about 40% of what native country has been calling for to be able to properly address the coronavirus. So it's good and there are resources, but at the same time, again, which bodies are disposable, which communities can be marginalized, and we're finding the same sort of patterns. You can't separate the history. You can't separate the history of settler colonialism, but there's also a lot of really wonderful things where people are recognizing that there's this sort of shared fate of native and non-native communities. Thank you very much, Justin. Drew, let's move to you. You study the concept and impact of environmental violence. Can you share with us your thoughts about the implications of COVID-19 on environmental change? Absolutely. And I've found in my conversations over the last few days, I have to preface my thoughts on this with the idea that I'm never arguing that we should be doing less for coronavirus, but rather think that this should look for a model on how we should deal with human-produced environmental violence. And the reason I say that is some of the statistics that I then present make it sound like I'm minimizing the risk of COVID. That's not at all the case, really. What this should tell us is that given the amount of and willingness of action towards coronavirus, that if we were to consider the implications of human-produced environmental change, both in the form of toxic pollution effects and the non-toxic pollution that's driving climate change, we should be doing significantly more towards those two phenomena if we were to be on balance with what we're doing for coronavirus. And so to put that in context, uh, in the last three months, uh, today, if you look at the John Hopkins University has been tracking all the deaths from coronavirus, uh, it's about 25,000 total deaths. In the U.S., it's about 1,300. Right? On a daily basis, from toxic pollution alone, about 23,000 people die around the world. And that's 550 people per day here in the United States. Right? These are drastically larger numbers. They equate to about 8.5 to 9 million people per year just from toxic pollution. So that doesn't include climate change from greenhouse gas emissions, all that, just human-produced toxic pollution. And then we look at the measures that we've put in place to deal with this, using China as an example as well. If you take the two months of reduced travel, mobility, et cetera, from mid-January to mid-March, just in lives saved from the reductions in toxic pollution, you're talking 73,000 people over the age of 70, and 4,000 children under the age of five are estimated to have been spared because of the measured reductions which arguably significantly larger number than the number of people saved from the coronavirus to date. Interestingly, it's the same populations that are most at risk or vulnerable to toxic pollution as are vulnerable or at risk to coronavirus, either the elderly or people with underlying health conditions, particularly respiratory issues. So there's a strong correlation between who's impacted by these different phenomena, but a very, very different level of energy uh, put towards the policies that are needed to mitigate these. And then as we turn to greenhouse gas emissions, uh, also using China as an example, because this is where a lot of the data is coming out of our measurements have been made. Just in that same two-month period, there was a reduction of 400 million tons of carbon dioxide over that period, which is a significant impact of reductions towards what it, one of the main drivers uh, or one of the main greenhouse gases affecting uh, global climate change. There's a whole host of other greenhouse gases that were also reduced during that, but carbon is one of the ones people pay attention to the most. So all to say that if we look at what we need to do to orient on the single largest source of human-caused death, which is toxic pollution, and also would be concurrently orienting on the issue of global climate change, which together would argue is the single largest threat to humanity today, the same policies of restricting mobility, reductions in mobility, reductions in resource use, rethinking the whole human niche towards one that is more humanitarian, more focused towards spending time in place, et cetera, it's many of the same things that we see happening across the globe for the coronavirus. 
And then you say, well, what about the economic cost of that? Well, just in the economic costs from toxic pollution alone, you're talking about $6 trillion a year lost to the global economy. Uh, you also see a vast amount of wealth inequality caused by just climate change, not even toxic pollution, but climate change. About 25% of global economic wealth inequality is due to global warming alone, which is only one part of climate change on whole. So just say there's many, many ways in which you can look at the parallels of this, but we're marshalling much more energy towards coronavirus than we have over the last several decades towards human-caused environmental change. And we hope to see that we can try and transition this energy and this concern for risk to humans and even the same populations towards more environmental ends. I think would be the best outcome of this terrible crisis that we find ourselves in today. Thank you very much, Drew. Kat, you are an anthropologist and you specialize in Sierra Leone and you have worked extensively on the Ebola crisis uh, in, uh, in Africa and specifically in Sierra Leone. Based on this uh, experience of yours, can you tell us perhaps why have so many people resisted here in the United States and elsewhere the various lockdown and social distancing orders that have been enacted by state and federal governments? Sure. Thank you, Asher. We, we actually learned a lot of lessons during the Ebola crisis about when and why and under what conditions people will actually listen to official advice and edicts concerning the deadliness of a disease and the measures need, that need to be taken in order to prevent its spread and flatten the curve, so to speak. What we found in Sierra Leone is that very low levels of trust in government were the primary reason that people did not listen to education dissemination regarding the lethality of Ebola. People believed that the government did not have their best interests at heart. At first, they believed that this was a plot by the government to eliminate their political enemies and that you know, they had some underlying economic and political reason for spreading the message of Ebola's existence. The second reason that trust in government was not improved upon was that the educational messaging that was given to people was either completely inaccurate in terms of what people actually knew about disease from the evidence of their own lives, and also whether they thought the government would be able to do anything about it. And so spreading a message in an area that had um, endemic loss of fever saying that this disease is somehow new and different is going to kill you actually went contrary to the evidence of people's own lives where they're used to people dying horrible deaths from viral hemorrhagic fevers, not infrequently. And so the messaging was not impactful because they were essentially treating people as though there was no history of epidemic disease in the area and endemic viral hemorrhagic fevers. So what you're finding in the U.S. is a sort of toxic cocktail stemming from several years of conspiracy theories about fake news, deep state, contradictory messaging with respect to news networks and the government not also sending a consistent message as to what this is, which creates plenty of room for people who, A, don't trust the government at all, whatever they think the government is, if they're talking about the president or talking about Congress, want to believe a certain sort of messaging over another, or believe that this is some kind of government conspiracy, as Trump initially said, was a conspiracy of 
the Democrats to try and undermine him, that people in all of this era of, of conflicting messaging and insufficient messaging are free to kind of extrapolate their own theories about what's going on. And they do this from all sides of the political spectrum. You have people who consider themselves very left-wing saying, this is a sort of fascist plot, the tail wagging the dog, create a crisis where there otherwise would be none in order to get an unpopular president another term. There are those on the right saying this is a, a conspiracy of Congress to try and actually undermine the president and prevent his reelection. And what this results in is that you get things circulating online, such as a hashtag that has recently been suppressed called COVID-19 challenge, urging people to try and prove in their own lives that COVID-19 is a conspiracy and that they shouldn't pay any attention, not only to social distancing, but also to, you know, not handling things um, that they're not actually going to purchase in supermarkets. Two days ago, a young man in Missouri was arrested for making terrorist threats in the second degree for filming himself in a Walmart licking products across an aisle. Two days earlier, a man in Florida was arrested on the same charges for filming himself licking every doorknob in a hotel that he was staying at over spring break. Now, this is evidence of people attempting to create evidence from their own experience that this is a conspiracy, that these are rumors, that these are proof of the existence of the deep state. And what this shows us is that, you know, a significant amount of lack of trust in government messaging, however people construe that, is what actually fuels cases rising and deaths rising, because they're not only disbelieving the information that they get from official sources, but actually setting out to directly contravene that information. Thank you. Thank you very much, Kat. Thank you all. You have all addressed structural issues that uh, preceded the eruption of this current crisis. I wonder if you can think for a moment about the extent to which the U.S. is unique in relations to other countries in the world with this respect, from a gender perspective, from environmental perspective, from treatment of indigenous uh, populations, and I'm also inviting you for, you know, general comments that you may want to make. On. I had a question for Ashley, if I can. I was curious because I agree with and, and think everything you say is really interesting. I'm just curious how we commensurate that with the, the data that's showing that and, and maybe it's just an access to care or who's being tested or who's, who gets recorded or not. Um, the current data shows about 58 percent of all cases are men and about 72 percent of all deaths are men. So if women are at greater risk. I'm trying to figure out why more men are dying or contracting. I mean, maybe it is just an underrepresentation that has been constant throughout human societies for, for women through oppression and for other reasons. Or maybe there's something else at play. There's a lot to say about evidence about the gender distribution of the contraction and death rate so far from coronavirus. One thing to say is that the numbers that we're seeing that are coming out of places like China, South Korea, Italy, Spain, places that have guaranteed access to care, right, may give a very different picture than what will happen in the United States, where there is a deeply gendered access to health care and to health insurance in general because of some of these other, other issues that I talked about. One of the other things that medical feminist medical research has shown for a really long time is that doctors tend to significantly under or downplay the severity of women's symptoms and women's pain. Similar research and evidence shows that that, that to be true uh, in relationship to people of color as well. 
So all of these sort of social expectations, not just about who is valuable and who needs access to care, but also whose cases are severe and what kinds of ameliorative or care illness and sickness require go into and may shape in a very different way in the United States the path of this virus. I think also one of the ways that the United States is not necessarily unique in the world, but quite different from some of the other places that have been global hotspots for COVID is the massive lack of access to testing, which all available evidence suggests that we have no reliable data about what's happening right now in the United States because of the massive dearth of testing. So I think all of these things might play into some of those expectations. And I think as the sort of PPE gear run out for nurses in particular, as exposure rates become higher, as the crisis continues, there will be more people who are turned away from hospitals, more people who are relying on the women in their lives to do unpaid care for sick and elderly people in their lives, that we might see a very different gendered path of the virus as it develops and continues. One of the other things to say, or some of the other epidemiological and medical hypotheses for the sort of gendered gap has been different kinds of gendered patterns of behavior that, for example, if masculinity is sort of defined in relation to being the primary breadwinner or taking unnecessary risk or being like, nothing can fell me. There might be also more risky behavior, right? That masculinized people or people who are trying to live up to masculine norms are exhibiting in the face of this crisis where there might be, especially women who are caring for others, might be less risk averse and taking social precautions a bit more seriously. All that is to say is that the first is that we have yet to see what the gendered distribution of this crisis means medically in the U.S., but also that gender informs practices and patterns of behavior and responses to the crisis in ways that aren't totally encapsulated by death rates or contraction rates even, that gender sort of touches a whole series of factors that inframe how we might interact with or avoid contraction in the crisis. Okay, I I would like to add that there's, um, we have the additional problem in the US of having a large population that is either uninsured or underinsured, and does not have regular access to medical care, whether it's on a Native American reservation, the homeless population, the gig economy workers, the zero hour workers who do not have access to healthcare benefits. And therefore, either are not getting tested, not going to hospitals, not gaining anything that we would consider to be even regular access to preventative care, giving them a lower baseline level of health to begin with. Now, there are other nations, especially a place like Congo, where there's an ongoing debate about what actually constitutes an excess death or an early death. What would be a normal death? in a place of you know, ongoing war, famine, poverty, and disease. And I think right now with COVID-19 in the US, we're actually facing a similar question. It's not only that we can't get people tested, but we don't even know how many people who have zero or limited access to the healthcare system are suffering and are dying 
from COVID-19, and they will actually never reach any sort of statistic. There are doctors and nurses who are going on record saying that the number of deaths from COVID-19 are being grossly underreported because these are deaths that are being reported as having different factors causing them and that COVID-19 might be an exacerbating factor, but they still also don't have the test result for them. And so we have to think of an uninsured population and COVID-19 almost as a syndemic Syndemic being a term to describe two diseases that coexist with each other. For example, HIV and Kaposi sarcoma are considered a syndemic because if you have HIV, then you're much more likely to develop Kaposi sarcoma. I would argue that COVID-19 and lack of insurance are syndemic here that are causing early and excessive deaths, deaths that we might never be able to actually attribute to COVID-19 because people are suffering from such poor health as a baseline that there's not even a possibility of describing them as having a pre-existing condition. They essentially are a pre-existing condition in this case. Just to add something about the testing procedure in the United States, so the way that they're doing tests right now is when they take a biological map order to test, they're actually testing for a wide range of things. And COVID is the last panel that they run in those tests. And if they encounter some other kind of infection, bacterial or viral, they will stop testing. Meaning that if you have a flu, you have pneumonia, you have bronchitis, or you have anything else, right? They'll say, oh no, you're not sick from COVID. You're sick from this thing. Even though every medical a statement has shown that it is, of course, possible to have both coronavirus and one of these other conditions. So if we think about some of the underlying conditions that people are likely to come in contact with, especially because of lack of access to medical care, all of those symptoms and deaths are being written off to these other phenomenon because they're not actually, even when they are being tested for COVID, those tests are not advancing to the level where they are actually running a test for coronavirus. The other just like small gendered thing to think about is that autoimmune conditions, which are notoriously difficult to diagnose, they take an average of seven years, multiple misdiagnoses, and at least five doctors in order to diagnose correctly, are also a set of conditions that first exacerbate COVID that make one more susceptible to contracting it and also are a set of conditions that are deeply gendered. So over 70% of people diagnosed with autoimmune conditions are women. And so what is happening in this testing procedure is that people are being told like, oh no, it's just an autoimmune condition flare. When of course, that doesn't say that the auto flare couldn't be in response to contact with the COVID virus. So I think we see lots of ways in which the counting and the numbers are deeply, deeply insufficient and wildly misleading in ways that put specific populations like the unemployed, like the uninsured, like the undocumented, like women, like people who are HIV positive to excess exposure and vulnerability in ways that the current medical documentation is not even going to register. Drew, may I take us back to the issues of the environment that you raised, you know, the, the positive side effects of, on the environment of, uh, you know, human re reduction of human activity across the globe. 
can you think about you know a few steps that we might be able to take a, a day after the end of this current crisis so that uh, the numbers do not go back and uh, and be as high as you were describing them in your uh, remarks sure. and i think that's a great question because one of the concerns amongst environmentalists is that you're going to have what's called rebound effect. So after this is over, as a part of the stimulus that people will be receiving, as a part of going back to the types of activities that people undertook prior to this, and then trying to make up for lost time, whether that be in material consumption or through travel, that the rebound of it will actually be above what the savings were over this period, as well as the energy for willingness to somehow impact or risk the economy, because now people are going to be concerned about having a rebound within the economy, will decrease the energy for environmental policy. A good portion of that is unfounded. If you look at the work of Michael Porter, he's a faculty member at the Harvard Business School, has shown over the last several decades how well-crafted environmental regulations actually make a country more competitive in the economy and have significant savings. So even an assessment of the portions, anyways, of the Green New Deal show that America would have a more competitive economy overall. And we already are sustaining globally and domestically here in the U.S. significant economic losses as a function of these environmental issues. So some of the economic concerns are significantly unfounded which is something people will have to think about as they transition or return back to different modes of consumption after this is done. Some simple things, though, we've all looked at, I mean, especially for, for us, many of us have missed conferences or travel that we were going to undertake. And so it's questioning what is necessary, what can be done at distance. Some of it is the activities that we undertake in our daily lives. There's been a significant amount of traffic reduction, which obviously reduces a significant amount of fossil fuel consumption. Um, how much travel is actually necessary in the day. And if some of the only activities that you can undertake are going outside of your home for a walk or what have you, and granted, this is anecdotal, but I, my office sits at a window and just seeing on the, I usually look out at the street every day and there's been significantly more foot traffic as a function of this. So people may be re-questioning what types of activities they can take in each day and the resources associated with those activities and other methods. I mean, Honestly, most of the consumption, though, that is associated with this is predominantly rich countries. So it's not the vast majority of countries, it's a small subset of countries that, and people within those countries, and then particularly those of greater wealth within those countries that have to rethink about how we're using resources and allocation of them to try and avert the expectation or what is expected to happen, which is this rebound effect. Yes. In, in relationship to thinking about this within an American context, a U.S.-based context, I think that there's some unique configurations that make mobilization and response within native communities uniquely challenging. I would almost say it's similar to, say, some of uh, stateless populations and in other cases where in a good day without the virus, who do you turn to? Where do you turn to? Where do you go for certain provisions? Where do you go for certain treatments? I would hate to think of what would have happened if the virus outbreak first took place on native communities in the United States. One can only think about some, what type of response or lack of response there might have been. There's a lot of folks who talk about that this system of sovereignty that native people have in the United States is really created through a structure of colonialism. That is to say that there's this dynamic um, sort of overlapping of jurisdiction and, and lines of responsibility that make it very difficult to understand who and where to move or where to go to for resources or even for, for particular types of protections. So in some way, it's good to have these legal platforms or overlapping legal platforms, but it also really makes it difficult to know, do you go to federal, do you go to state, or do you go to tribal entities for, uh, for healthcare, 
for protections and so on and so forth. So I think in that context, the United States is unique because it really creates bigger gaps of vulnerabilities, I would say, for Native peoples, not just legal, not just medical, not just jurisdiction, but also just these, these sort of cultural and social vulnerabilities that if, in fact, the virus were to move into Native territory, it would cause a lot of issue, I think, in terms of how do we even mobilize resources to support these communities. And I think there would also be a lot of pushback because there's a lot of misrepresentations and prejudice around Native communities, thinking that all Native communities have resources, tribal gaming resources, and so on and so forth, when in fact, that's clearly not the case. So I'm happy at this point that it hasn't flared up with a Native country, but I think once it does, there's a lot of complexity. And I think that's why there's an added sense of urgency and attention that needs to be paid to Native communities. Thank you very much, Justin. Thank you all for participating in this conversation. I appreciate it very much. I think we at the Croc Institute has a lot to contribute, to add to the conversation about coronavirus. We bring the expertise that we have just heard from our faculty and the students, and I appreciate very much your contribution. I hope we are able to continue this conversation in the near future. You've been listening to the CrocCast, Peace Studies Conversations convened by the University of Notre Dame's Croc Institute for International Peace Studies. You can find all episodes of the CrocCast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, and online at croc.nd.edu slash podcast. This episode is a preview of a live webinar conversation focused on the current coronavirus crisis that will take place in early April 2020. Visit croc.nd.edu for more information about upcoming virtual events. You can also rate and review our podcast, which will help more people find our show. For more updates and stories from the Croc Institute, follow us online on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks for listening.